Hello everyone and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Brennan, and this is your specialist podcast for interested in the opportunities and challenges of operating the temperature-controlled supply chain in the UK and around the world. It's been about a couple of weeks since we had our last podcast and I'm hopefully back into a rhythm of, 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 of interesting conversations with key people from around our industry. Um, certainly today is no exception to that. Um, it's also a very worrying time. You know, we've we've had some really quite scary uh, geopolitical developments with the situation on the in Eastern Europe, um, and that obviously has implications for how our global supply chain operates, and will have knock-on effects for our cold chain, not least the potential uh, exacerbating factor it will have for the cost of energy. One of the biggest single headaches facing people trying to operate temperature-controlled warehousing in the UK right now. We've also had this week the announcement of the end of all legal restrictions um, imposed as a result of managing the COVID pandemic. Now, there's a big debate about whether it's the right time to be doing that, but certainly it marks an important moment in the evolution of our management of this issue as a country. And I guess it's worth reflecting at this point, as I have throughout, about just how proud I am of what the cold chain achieved throughout the past three years, whether it be standing up to uh, the uncertainties and peaks and troughs of demand and, and consumer behaviour in the food chain throughout, but also our pharmaceutical chain who've created, uh, over a matter of a few weeks, a national distribution uh, effort for the vaccine on an unprecedented scale. Um, a real moment when the cold chain had the eyes of the world upon it and stood up and showed what it could do. So I'm incredibly proud of that. Cold Chain Federation also announced, announced its new events, a couple of new events this week. Um, not least and most importantly, the, the launch of our Cold Chain Live conference in the, in, on the 8th and 9th September at Birmingham International Conference Centre. Really, really exciting programme. I can't wait to reveal and share it with you all. Um, but you can now book your ticket. So book now, book early, book often. Um, go on the website www.coldchainfederation.org.uk forward slash events for more details. So on to today... Um, I'm really delighted to use this platform to talk to other people who do the same job as me, run trade associations. And I've spoken at different points to the heads of the RHA, the Food and Drink Federation and others in the last couple of years. But today I had the chance to speak to the newest uh, trade association leader on the block, and that's Claire Bottle, the chief executive of the UK Warehousing Association. Um, Formerly, uh, most recently, the sort of leading supply chain operations for coca-cola in the uk and also a founding member of the really exciting and important women in logistics network and she's bringing her experience enthusiasm and passion for logistics to trade association leadership and i'm delighted to be able to work with her and this is a conversation where we cover some of the first impressions she's got as she takes on the new role and talking about how we can make sure we're collaborating in ways that benefit us all I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. My name is Shane Brennan, and I'm Chief Executive of the Cold Chain Federation. And today I'm joined by my guest, a fellow Chief Executive of the Trade Body from the UK Warehouse Association, Claire Bottle. Hello, Claire. Hi. Great to have you on the podcast. It's actually the first time in about two years I've had done this in person with somebody. Normally, I've been doing this over, over Zoom or what have you in the COVID times that we are. So um, interesting and quite, quite different, different experience. Um, so Cold Chain Podcast is our project to get to know some people who are involved in the cold chain or in, in logistics generally. And I've also interviewed a number of different cold uh, trade association leaders over the past um, 
a couple of years. Um, and you're probably the newest trade association leader on the block coming into the UKWA. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the organisation? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so uh, I worked in operational logistics for about 25 years uh, until last June when uh, I started at the UK Warehousing Association um, somewhat against my better judgment initially. So let me just say that when I was contacted by a headhunter about the role, uh, it didn't seem to me like an obvious career move that I would want to make. Uh, so it took a bit of soul searching. Um, and part of my rationale was in a way rather negative because I started to imagine if somebody else got the job and if they didn't do it well enough, how angry I, that would make me. Um, I'm very passionate about logistics. I hope that's going to come through in our conversation. Um, and uh, I began to imagine all the important things that a person who was chief of exec of UKWA could do and should do. Uh, and the more I thought about it, the more I realised that actually I was quite well placed uh, to do that. Uh, and, and that's what appealed to me. I mean, you're, 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 throughout your sort of uh, working life, you've always been involved in networks, commercial, corporate business networks and people networks. And obviously, you're a founder of Women in Logistics, for example, aren't you? So you sort of see the value of the, of the, of the collaboration between, between sort of competitors or people operating in the same industry. Yeah, I think that the term I would use is, is what's important to me is a sense of community. Uh, so it's not necessarily uh, that you let your guard down and share all of your secrets with your competitors, uh, but it's that you're on the same journey together. Um, so fairly early on in my career, I worked for a chemicals company called Solvay. Um, they're very big in Europe, uh, but they didn't have that big of a footprint in the UK, and I was their national logistics manager. Um, but it wasn't a big logistics team. Uh, and so what I found really useful then was I started to rely more on my membership of the CILT, the Chartered Institute, um, just to, you know, to get that sense of community and, and have a feeling of, of working with other like-minded logisticians. Um, so I would say from, you know, quite an early point in my career, uh, I felt like it was important to meet other people, learn from other people, share some of the challenges as well and, and see if you could get some good ideas. For example, I was very keen to try and get some of our freight onto rail. Uh, it was no good asking my counterparts in uh, Spain or France how to do that in the UK because it was a different you know, political context, a different geographical setup. Everything about it would be different. Uh, and so it was... Uh, friends that I'd met through the CILT that helped me to make that happen. And I think that what I found, because obviously I'm, I'm not from logistics background at all, and I've been here for three or four years in Coltrane Federation, it is notable to me as someone who works in association generally that the logistics industry has been... There's a lot of people in logistics who don't see the value of necessarily being part of these networks, or they don't necessarily feel that that's relevant to them. But obviously people like yourself have always been throughout doing this kind of stuff. How do you feel that the industry is right now in terms of its attitude towards sort of collaborative networks like UKWA? Um, well, I think it's been quite difficult to do things face to face. I mean, you alluded to the fact that, you know, uh, us doing this podcast face to face feels a little bit unfamiliar now. But I'd like to say it feels quite friendly. And hopefully yeah. that reflects the fact that, you know, uh, we're organisations that want to collaborate and work well together. Um, and similarly, I think uh, there's a bit of pent up 
uh, expectation about being able to get back to those face-to-face -face events. Uh, we've got our UKWA conference coming up in about a month um, and I've been surprised how many people really can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we thank you very much for our invitation and we'll be there um, as well. I mean, UKWA is a, is a long-established organisation. Can you say a little bit more about that for people that haven't not necessarily completely familiar with the organisation itself? Or they've just heard about the name but don't necessarily know exactly um, yeah, how well, you fit into the mix? I'll tell you a bit of history. You can always cut this bit out if you don't want to hear it. Um, so, uh, back in the day, warehousing always used to be at ports. That was the way that warehousing worked, you know, and if you, uh, if you look back at old architecture around the Docklands of places like Liverpool and London, you can see that that's where the warehousing was centred. Um, but uh, during the Second World War, uh, with the uh, onslaught and bombardment of those port locations, there was a real kind of national effort to try and establish what, inland warehousing. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it was farmers who had outbuildings or barns or similar types of buildings which could be repurposed for warehousing uh, who kind of stepped up. Uh, and it was during that time uh, that the concept of a, uh, a, an association for in, inland warehouse keepers was established. So initially, we were the National Association of Inland Warehouse Keepers. Wow. Um, and that was uh, way back in, a, I forget the exact date, but it was the 1940s, um, just after the war, I think, when, when the organisation was first established. Uh, and it really came out of that kind of wartime switch in the way that people thought about warehousing um, and the kind of role of the warehouse in the supply chain. Um, so uh, kind of fast forward a bit, around uh, 2000, I think we, uh, we rebranded it to the UKWA with a new logo and the look that people will know nowadays. Um, and really we appeal to uh, two different types of members. So we've got roughly 900 companies who are members uh, about 200 of them are our associate members. So those will be companies with some kind of goods or services that they want to sell into the warehousing market. So they might sell warehouse management systems or forklift trucks or consultancy services. Um, and then we've got another uh, 700 or so members who are warehouse, well, what used to be called warehouse keepers. Uh, now we would probably say warehouse operators. Um, the vast majority of those are third-party logistics companies. And certainly, I think I think what you described, obviously, very, very similar formats to the Colting Federation and actually you know, the Federation the federation model. Um, that kind of support that gives you that certainty that there is a universal way of approaching something like that at the baseline that you can you can rely on. Is that sort of an area where Aqua obviously operates in other, other ways as well, providing that kind of support um, an advisory sort of service to its membership base. Yeah, for sure. So the terms and conditions are really important and they're very robust. You know, they come with a certain amount of legal backup. So if you do have questions about it, we've got a helpline to support with that. Uh, but there's so much more to UKWA membership than just the terms and conditions. Uh, in fact, some of our bigger members have got their own legal departments. If you think about an organisation like Wing Canton or DHL, they're not actually using the terms and conditions, but they still want to be a member of UKWA because of some of the other stuff that we provide. So an example would, of that would be the fact that we run a programme of prestigious events, and that goes back to the sense of community that I was talking about before. So... The way I can't think of another place where I've rubbed shoulders with Princess Anne other than that for <laughs> event. Princess Anne is an absolute superstar of logistics and, yeah. and a role model of mine. I think she's she's brilliant. Uh, she's also a patron of TransAid, where I was on the board for a while. She's, she was, she's actually a raw logistics core, isn't she? 
military military logistics. I think that's right? right. Yes, and and yeah. she does have an HGV license. Yeah, but it was I was very impressed when I when I when I when I was meet I was in the lineup the first time I've shook hands with royalty was at an aqua event. <laughs> um, so that's one way in which we put across this idea of prestige, and sometimes you know our our. Our annual lunch is usually in a in a grand hotel in London. Uh, but similarly, another aspect of what is what people find prestigious about our events is that we do interesting and exciting visits to see, you know, what's the latest in robotics, for example. Uh, and people want to see that because um, there's always something to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one obviously you're you're new to being trade station leader and 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 and, and involved in. On the executive side of running trade bodies, obviously you're now lobbyist in chief of the UK Warehouse Association. So how do you sort of how do you sort of see the challenge of that, and how's your sort of lay, what's your view of the lay of the land of how logistics and warehousing in particular is seen within government? That's a great question, Shayla. Thank you. So um, I think. Uh, the sorts of problems we've seen in supply chains over the last couple of years have been exacerbated by Brexit, by COVID, by the Ever Given getting caught up in the Suez Canal. Uh, and all of that has brought this idea of the supply chain to the forefront of people's minds in the public and, of course, with policymakers. Um, so it's it's relatively new for me, as you say, to be engaging with those people. I haven't had a job before where I've been talking to those in government um, but I, I really relish it. You know, I, I find it very interesting and, and on the whole quite positive. Uh, so, for example, um, I, I thought that warehousing didn't really have a place in government in the same way that transport does. You, you'll know that, you know, for transport, you've got the Department for Transport and you've yeah. got Ministers for Transport and there's no Department of Warehousing, no Ministers, no Select Committee, not even an APPG. Um, and All party parliamentary group. Thank you. Uh, um, so uh, I felt that warehousing didn't really belong. So I was quite pleased to hear from uh, the new department for levelling up uh, housing and communities that they are actually the, the owners of, of warehousing, if you like, from a government perspective, and that they really are planning to take a lead on this. Um, but you may have seen some of my comments in the press about the recent levelling up paper that came out, um, which I felt disappointed in because... There's a great opportunity there for government to really kind of step up to the plate to make sure that they recognise the importance of warehousing. Uh, and the fact that we belong to that department goes along with our recent research that, was, uh, that we did in conjunction with the British Property Federation, where we can clearly show that warehousing is stronger in the north than it is in the south. And some of those communities where levelling up is absolutely targeted at are places where warehousing can play an important part uh, as an employer of choice uh, as an opportunity for property development um, so we really you know we see warehousing as being a success story for the economy uh, and an important part of leveling up do you think government sees warehousing as infrastructure they may not but they should yeah, I, I certainly agree with you on that. I mean, so I obviously didn't work in where logistics at all until I arrived in, in Cold Chain Federation, and I didn't think about warehousing. You know, as, as a general customer, you know, buying my goods. You know, I was involved in the retail sector. I was involved in the in the in the in the food production sector in different parts of my career, but never really involved in specific in logistics, and never really paid it much much mind. Obviously now, a bit like you, I'm a passionate advocate of all things of all things logistics and all things warehousing. Um, but I think when you really unpack it, how fundamentally important 
what warehousing is. It's to the, it's to, it has been to our economic development as a country, is now and will be in the future. And as we start thinking about net zero transition and the, 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 the future of, of, of how we run our country and our economy and our society and our lives, how we organise our warehouses is going to be at the, core, the centre of that, isn't it? Well, I mean, if you take a very first principles sort of approach to this, you could say man started out as a hunter-gatherer, and when you're hunting and gathering, everything's just there and you use what's in front of you. If you want to move on in any way to a, a, a higher level of civilization, then you have to store stuff, mm. and you have to have a way of processing what you're storing, and, and that is the beginning of the concept of warehousing, I think. Yeah, and one of the, one of the things that sort of is a currency of the conversation people are having about retail and retail retailing as a, as a thing is the is the increasing sort of the post store the post retail outlet kind of world where effectively stuff's coming from the warehouse or the distribution center direct to the consumer do you think that is the future is that really what the sort of the nature of what the warehousing of the future is about is is, is skipping out the retail store uh well Predicting the future isn't something I've got a great history of doing. So what I think what I'll, how I'll answer your question, Shane, is to say what we can definitely see is happening right now, which is a, a huge growth in e-commerce. Um, and uh, about a year ago now, UKWA published a report which was uh, written for us by Savills, the property company, demonstrating that over the previous six years, warehousing had grown by 32%. Uh, and when I say grown, what I mean is um, that the... The size of the warehouses is getting bigger, they're getting taller, individual warehouses now are bigger, but also just the amount of space that is given over to warehousing activity is much, much bigger. And one of the things that's driving that is the fact that preparing goods to dispatch them to consumers' home addresses is more space-hungry. So the, the area of the warehouse which might traditionally have racking in it, uh, you, you know, you can store the same amount of stuff in the same space. In fact, sometimes because warehouses are tending to get a bit taller, you can make better use of, of the floor space. But when it comes to activities that used to take place on the high street being pushed back up the supply chain into the warehouse, then they're more labour intensive, they're more space hungry and more space has to be given over to uh, that kind of marshalling and preparation of the goods. I mean, you can imagine it, even a layperson can sort of visualise that if you're putting goods into a cage, like you might see in the uh, aisles of a supermarket, um, that's, that's quicker and takes up less space than individually packaging them uh, in the way that a company like Amazon might do to dispatch to a consumer. Yeah, it's not. It's really something that I actually haven't had that much. I've been walking around sort of frozen warehouses and, and chill operations and picking operations for wholesalers and the like. I haven't quite got into seeing this sort of, the, apart from one day looking at the Ocado robots um, in Andover. I was only there a couple of weeks before it caught fire, so not, not guilty, Gav. Um, but um, but um, it's really is. Is that, is that affecting the geography of warehousing? You know, our warehouses change in a different place. So you talked about the fact that originally warehousing was at the ports, then it was inland, mm-hmm. sort of in major centres and sort of in the archeries of the UK. Are we seeing that? Is that still where warehousing is going to be for the long term? Or are we seeing warehousing reaching out more into more places around the, around the geographic UK? Well, one of the phenomena which uh, I, I think we're starting to see is that while I talked about warehouses getting bigger, they're at the same time getting smaller. Mm. So at those two extremes, yeah. we're seeing a growth. So there are 
you know, again, I'll, I'll make reference to Amazon because they, you know, they, they are really the epitome of this, is that an enormous Amazon uh, fulfillment centre is only ever going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, you know, typically those are at least a million square feet. Um, whereas there are also some small close to market type facilities which are being used for making sure that you can uh, deliver quickly. Um, and I, whilst I think it's unlikely that you'll see those inside the middle of city centres, I think they're tending to be located uh, in, a, in places which make the city centre more accessible. This is an area that fascinates me, and I don't think we've got a complete handle on it yet from a culture Federation point of view, but it's an area where we're very much trying to understand is the future of urban urban um, urban fulfilment, uh, urban delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in a situation where Paris is going to ban access to its city centre from, from diesel vehicles in 2024. So at what point, how do we fulfill our retail stores how do we do this online um, delivery fulfillment to customers to to where to people's home addresses if it's in if it's in urban centers in a world where you can't take vehicles into those places anymore and the idea of the warehouse or the 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 the, 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 the consolidation of fulfillment point close to population centers is an interesting dynamic and i wonder whether that's sort of phenomenon you talked about which is that small small unit um, operation alongside the big the big mega DCs is actually a, a thing we're going to see permeating across the piece. And so what we, what we, what we call a warehouse is probably going to be something different, I guess is what I mean. Well, it could be. And I think there's, there's another factor that goes along with that, which is the availability of labour. Um, so one of the things we're obviously finding at the moment is that uh, I talked about the fact that uh, fulfilment for e-commerce is more labour intensive. So we need more and more people uh, to keep up with the, the pace of growth in e-commerce in particular, but in warehousing more generally as well. And at the same time, we're facing a squeeze because um you know, a, a high proportion of forklift truck drivers would have been EU nationals. I think it was about 34% a couple of years ago, uh, and that percentage has fallen dramatically. Um, whether you can attribute all of that to Brexit, I, I doubt. I think it's something to do with COVID as well, and there may be some other factors there. Uh, but the upshot is that the, the market or the pool of talent that we can fish in has got smaller at a time when we actually need more people. And all of that is against a backdrop, which we've seen for a long, long time time in logistics which is that uh, either we're invisible or we're a career of last resort so I think being located alongside of where people live is not just about making sure that we can deliver to them efficiently but it's also about trying to make sure that we can tap into those labour markets Um, and one of the key things that I want to try and do at the UKWA is to tackle that image problem that we've got I mean it wasn't that long ago that the um, shadow minister for science was saying we need to encourage more people into science don't you dare encourage them into warehousing and i was absolutely livid about that because there are two problems with it one is a value judgment that is implied that working in warehousing isn't a great career choice well thank you that doesn't help our cause at all but then the second point would be Warehousing is part of science. You can't deliver successful science without having warehousing. In fact, almost everything that we do in our economy is associated with some kind of physical goods and therefore has to be stored and processed. We wouldn't have vaccinated the nation if we didn't have a sophisticated approach to how we were going to store and distribute vaccines. It's a very good cold chain point. Well made. Absolutely. Yes, cold chain. Cold chain chain saved saved the the nation. Um, I've said that a few times. Um, 
In terms of, you talked a lot about, um, and one of the things I was delighted to see when you when, when you were appointed, Claire, was 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 the, your background in people and in and, and, and in and in bringing together networks. Obviously, the women's logistics is the thing I knew you best for before before you took on this role. But just generally, this idea of of, of bringing on the next generation of talent or making sure we've got a diversity of talent and uh, and people across logistics. How do you see that in, interlaying with your work at Upquo in the future? Well, I think it's going to be really important and and it's something that our members have told us about. So when the UK government budget came out at the end of October, we surveyed our members and we asked them, okay, in the light of what we've we've just heard from from policymakers, thinking about the fiscal climate in 2022, what are the big issues? What do you really care about? And it was a very clear answer. It's just one thing that they cared about and it was the labour shortages, which I touched on earlier. You know, people were saying... um, We've got vacancies, we've got more demand than ever before, uh, we're struggling to find people, uh, and and it's at every level. So, you know, warehousing uh, may have a reputation for some quite straightforward entry-level jobs, and I see that as being a positive, because they can be an engine of social mobility. You know, you don't have to be all that highly qualified to be able to get entry-level work that pays a decent amount of of wages uh, in a warehouse environment. But of course, there are also a lot of growth opportunities for people that want them. So something like half of all the managers and directors that work in logistics will probably retire by 2027. I know we don't have retirement ages anymore, but if if you assume that retirement age is often uh, around the sort of 60 to 70 mark, then we can see a bit of a ticking time bomb in our demographic. Uh, And of course, that does go back to what you mentioned before about women in logistics. When I started out in our sector, about 9% of the managers in logistics were women. It's now about 14%. But that pace of change is way too slow. I don't want it to be my great-great-great-granddaughters who finally achieve equality. I think we can go faster. Yeah. And I think within within a, a marketplace or within an industry that is having that problem generally cold chain's even worse particularly you know the the environments we're operating in the primary nature of the distributions that we're doing we have a real uh, issue with the sort of variety of of uh, of the workforce within that but i guess the question then is about 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 that point you made so we've got you know science shadow science ministers saying you know this isn't the job that they want people to be doing um how do we tell people about the the exciting opportunities there are in a, in a logistics career. How do we how do we get into that? Do you think it's a great question? I wish I knew a really simple answer to it. I, I think part of the problem, which I've spoken about publicly before, is um, logistics doesn't really feature in the national curriculum. So when kids go to school, we teach them about all sorts of things, including you know touching upon different career ideas that might ignite their interest. But logistics just doesn't feature. So if you take business as an A-level or a B-tech, you might get one lesson about supply chains. Beyond that, we will literally never mention it to you. And yet, if you look at the workforce in the UK, at least 7% of people work in something to do with logistics. And I think that proportion will probably go up as we see a decline continue in the high street uh, and, and we increase our demand for people working in, in warehousing and transport, but I think predominantly in warehousing. So if we want more than 7% of our young people to end up working in logistics, we can't continue to rely on this history that we have of people accidentally ending up in logistics and making a joke of it, because it's not a joke. And how does, 
I guess one of the things, that, the challenges that I've heard and I've struggled to answer is about how you match the expectations of the workforce that's coming up with the nature of the work. You know, so the hours, the profile, the way it works. Do you think that the, that we, that the industry is doing enough in that area to, to adapt to what the, the workforce of tomorrow want from, work, from, the, from the career uh, or just or, you know, even the career, the day, the week to week work patterns? Of, 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 of expectations of the future compared to how we do things now. Is there something that can be done in that space, do you think? Well, one of the things that I've tried myself in the past as, a, as an operator of a warehouse was to approach my employment agency. Uh, and, and a lot of warehouse work involves, I suppose, an aspect of the gig economy where, at least as a start point, uh, people often come into a warehouse as an agency worker. Um, but my conversation with the agency that I spoke to was to say, look, I'm not going to tell you a shift pattern. You tell me what shift pattern people want to work and I'll tell you whether I can find a way of, of accommodating that. But as a model, that was flawed because that's not how agencies operate. That's not what people who are seeking work are, are looking. That's not a question they're used to answering. Uh, and so I think we all need to be a bit more imaginative and that must be part of, of how we can... Mm tackle these these issues yeah absolutely um so one of the questions you know i having a conversation earlier before we start the podcast but i think it's prompted a thought in my mind um if we think about sort of logistics jobs and you break them down into the two main ones that we always think about which is on the one hand the transport side and the other hand the warehouse side transports are very regulated um, and very standards of operating, skills standards led uh, part of a, a career. You know, you have to have a driving mm-hmm. license, you have to have qualifications to run transport operations and the like. None of that really exists in warehouse. And do you think that's a, that's a gap or a problem? I mean, how do we think that might, might impact on attitudes to, to work in warehousing? Um, well, I think in some ways it can be an advantage because it uh, means that the barriers to entry are a bit lower. Um, uh, and, for example, if you were to draw a parallel between driving a forklift truck and driving a, a road-going lorry, um, there isn't actually a forklift truck licence. Mm. Um, it's, it's certification, it's making sure that people are competent and are trained to the right standards, but it's not technically actually a licence. Um, having said that, you do need to be trained, but the benefit of that training is that it can be done in a week. Um, you know, um, and the pass rates are higher, uh, and the, the cost and the time that it takes uh, are better. So another advantage that we've found, uh, and UKWA have partnered with a great organisation called Tempest Novo. Um, those uh, that organisation works with uh, people in prison and ex-offenders um, to try and uh, get them into work um, for those who want to leave a life of crime behind. You can't teach somebody to drive a lorry while they're in prison, but you can teach them to drive a forklift truck. Um, so there's definitely an advantage to be had there um, and in fact Tempest Novo have some a, a real success story to tell uh, about uh, some of the work they've done with open prisons so people who are still serving a prison sentence being able to come out of prison during the shift go to a warehouse you know be employed get, uh, do, do work uh, and then uh, return to prison uh, to serve out the remainder of their sentence but of course you can then come out of prison with a trade, uh, with the qualifications and experience that you need. And, and what I've learned from those guys is that reoffending rates tend to be around 60%, but there are two factors that change that. If you can sort out housing and employment, then reoffending drops to something like 5%. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's a, a great a great organisation and one that um, that we, we're keen to help support as well. Um, just a sort of question on, on, on the training side to sort of close it off. Do you think that the, 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 the industry invests enough in skills development and training for, for its employees? Are, are warehouse employers, in the broadest sense, investing enough in this space or is there a, is there, is, is there a problem of attitude to 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 to, to, that, to to their to their people within that i think there is i think there's a, a kind of cultural legacy of people learning on the job um so typically you know a, a good picker might be given the opportunity to go off the agency and become permanent uh, and then once they're permanent you might train them to use a counterbalance truck and then perhaps get them uh, you know uh, a ticket to drive a wider range of different sorts of forklifts and then if they turn out to be good at that they may end up as a supervisor ultimately as a warehouse manager and quite frequently there won't have been any training to go along with that other than that sort of technical or mandatory training so most UKWA members and I'm sure most Cold Chain Federation members will have the requisite number of trained first aiders and fire marshals so I'm not talking about that type of training but there's another aspect of training which is often missing. Yeah, I know this is an area where UKWA has got a long, got a history of working in, and I know it's an area that we're going to develop further. And certainly, Cold Chain Federation is keen to work with UKWA to, to to take this area of things forward. And I guess that's my kind of final question. Really, is really or final questions is really about coming into the space. Obviously, you've joined the UKWA. You've probably seen those different group of trade bodies there are in the logistics space we're one you're one um, and there are others how do you sort of see that kind of relationship between trade bodies and, and how do, and how how we can work together to, uh, to to achieve our goals well logistics is growing so there's room for everybody um i think it's important for us to collaborate together i wouldn't like policymakers to see uh examples of conflict because i think that's only going to be damaging for everybody in the industry um, so we should definitely be working together, Shane. I hope you agree. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, and, and one of the things that uh, we were speaking about earlier is this idea of a certificate of professional competence. Uh, so as my background is in operational logistics, I've got a certificate of professional competence in national haulage. Uh, and that's a mandatory qualification for anybody that wants to work in transport and run a transport fleet. And you would need to submit that to the traffic commissioner in order to be eligible for an operator's license none of those kind of structures exist in warehousing Um, and whilst i'm not necessarily in favor of regulation uh, to that effect i do think uh, professionalizing warehouse management in a similar way might be beneficial uh, for for members of ccf and ukwa yeah I, i definitely definitely see that i think i sort of see that you know there are lots of trade bodies and um, out there, and there always will be, because if there, even if, if there ever was, I mean, Michael Hasseltine in the 1980s wrote a report that said there should only be one trade body for every industry sector. But imagine how, if you think about that, try and follow the logic of that through, it kind of makes sense from a government point of view to a certain extent, or at least it, maybe it did at the time. But it's all very communist, that. The idea that there is this one, this one entity you talk to to talk to the whole of an industry. Whereas in reality, industries are diverse and they've got different areas of emphasis. And if you have very large organisations that represent a whole range of interests, all there are within that are lots of factions. So actually, I think it's quite transparent to have 
a variety of different bodies doing different things as long as they're all clear about what their purpose is. And I think, you know, from a culture federation point of view, we're very clear about our very specific set of, of, of priorities. I know that something that you're bringing into UKWA is a very clear sense of focus on the things that are going to be the UKWA priorities and there are others as well. So I think that that multitude of voices actually has very, very powerful. And certainly, you know, what you, you and I have, have done ever since you arrived is, is, is just share information, share intelligence and look at ways in which we can co- coordinate in order to make sure our members are getting the best voice because um, there, there are shared members getting the best voice out there to, to government. And, um, and, and I think we can, we can keep doing that in, in, in lots of different ways. Um, and always thinking about, and the other thing, making sure we're not duplicating. You know, all the stuff you've talked about today about training and development is an area that Cultural Federation isn't going to operate in to any large degree. And, but we can certainly help UKWA to do that. And when it comes to things like sustainability and cold chain related issues, with which some members are, you can collaborate with us. So I think that creates a real, a real sort of responsible and mature way of, of, of organisations engaging. I'm just, that's not even asking a question now, am I? Do you agree <laughs> with that, Claire? Shane, I absolutely agree. And I think both of our organisations need to use our resources to the best possible effect. That's what our members would expect us to do. Uh, You know, I think your team is maybe slightly larger than mine. But nevertheless, it's not as though either of us have got huge swathes of people that can afford to duplicate. So Mm. we do need to work together. uh, And I'm glad that we've got the opportunity to do that. So um, thank you very much, Claire, for your time. Just so so thinking about your year ahead, remind us of the dates of your conference and any other major things that are happening that are worth uh, flagging at this point? Yeah, sure. So our conference is going to be on the 8th and 9th of March. It's taking place in Chester and it's entitled Building Tomorrow's Workforce Today. Uh, and we'll then be resuming our annual awards uh, and luncheon, uh, which we unfortunately couldn't do in either 2020 or 21. Uh, but for 2022, that's going to be at the Royal Lancaster Hotel in London on the 28th of June. Brilliant. Great. Well, we'll, we'll certainly be there from a Coldstream Federation point of view, and I'm sure many of the Coldstream Federation members will be there too. Claire, thank you very much for joining the Coldstream podcast. Thank you. Oh, well, I think you'll all agree with me that we're very lucky that Claire Bottle has decided to take on this new challenge and join the ranks of the leaders that are going to represent our industry to the politicians, to the media and to others throughout the next um, few years. I'm certainly looking forward to the collaborations that we can do together between the UKWA and the Coltrane Federation in the years ahead. Really striking when we talk there about the importance of people, the importance of skills, the challenge of ensuring the next generation of leaders of our supply chain are coming through, whether that be people starting out um, on the ground floor or people coming in at the more leadership levels with ideas about how we can do things differently, how we can adapt to our changing world and really take on the challenge of redefining how we do what we do to meet the requirements of net zero and the changing supply chain. And I think in UKWA and Culture Federation, we have forums to discuss and debate those issues. So thanks again for listening to our latest podcast. Um, More coming up uh, next month and and throughout the year. So make sure you're subscribed. Um, Go on your favourite podcast platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or others, And please, if you're feeling generous, leave us a review. A five-star review really helps with us to grow our reach and profile as as, as a podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Shane Brennan, and this is the Cold Chain Podcast.